Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, we've got stuff today. Let's start off with, unfortunately, with a couple of obituaries. First one from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 29, 2023. Harvey Byron, September 5th, 1928 to January 23rd, 2023. Author unknown. Harvey Edward Byron, known by everyone in his life as Old Har, was a papa to all. Everyone always said that when they made the mold for Harvey Byron, they threw it out. It's hard to put into words the man he was and the impact he had on the lives of others. His soul was emanated through the warmth of his smile, his hands, and the feeling you had in his embrace. He, his family knew no one would ever love them like he did. He set the bar for what it means to love unconditionally. Harvey was born on September 5, 1928, to Jewish parents, Florence and Louis Birnbaum in Los Angeles, California. He had an older brother, Marvin, who he adored so much that they lived across the street from each other their entire adult lives until Marvin's death in 2008. After serving in the army, Harvey met the love of his life, Elena Sugar Aaron, on a blind date at 19 years old. He must have swept her off her feet because they spent almost 71 years of married bliss together, setting an unattainable example for everyone else. They shared everything together, an antique business, trips to Europe and Hawaii, Scrabble games, Indian Wells tennis matches, old movies, show tunes, party hosting, and sweet kisses in their backyard over a bowl of fresh fruit. They kept up their tan in the Sherman Oaks in Hawaii, and Hawaii, and someone making it old, someone making old age look good for being the tannest people in their 90s. They had two children, five granddaughters, two honorary grandchildren, nieces and nephews, all excited to hear the many quips of their dad and papa. Not a day went by where he didn't utter "God love ya," thanks a million, you're terrific. Being the mensch that he was, he just as likely exclaimed, Oi, gutting you, stop kvetching, and you're such a meshugana. Always in jest, with the, and with the cheekiest of smiles, Harvey gave the best compliments and the cleverest digs. He attended UCLA, and then graduated from Southwestern Law, where he earned his JD, becoming a successful criminal defense attorney and practicing well into his 80s. He was unsurprisingly everyone's favorite face to see in court. Beyond that, he was also the favorite at the bank and the doctor's office and just about everywhere else he went. It truly had that effect on every person he met. Anyone that knew him knew his real passion was singing and he was a trained opera singer. He put that, into good, he put that to good use, regularly performing for the folks at home but would never object to taking the stage at any party or senior living center like the Jewish Center Home, the Jewish Home for the Aged. He'd most often imitate his favorite singer, Al Jolson. And if you hadn't heard Harvey sing Mammy or April Showers, you ain't heard nothing yet. If he closed your eyes, it was like Jolson was there. The similarity in their voices was uncanny. It'd be impossible to paint a full picture of Harvey without mentioning his love of sports. It all began with basketball, but at 5'6", his basketball career as captain of the high school C team was cut short, so he focused on ping pong, becoming the L.A. City champion. 
Harvey spent an, an, an unaccountable number of hours watching his favorite sports teams and players. He would never miss a Roger Federer tennis match, Lakers basketball game, or Dodgers baseball game. And everyone knew where to find him each Saturday in the fall, wearing a Notre Dame hat, Notre Dame t-shirt, and sitting in a Notre Dame director's chair rooting on the Fighting Irish. Having season tickets to the Rams, Dodgers, Lakers, and Raiders, he shared this undying love of sports with his family. Music, sports, laughter, and card games were the soundtrack of time spent with Harvey. He was generous beyond belief. He'd say, use it in the best of health, and you'd know what that, and you'd know what that meant. All he wanted from life was happy, loving family, and anyone can attest, he achieved that in spades. Harvey will be immeasurably missed, but a year ago he lost his sweet sugar and has been waiting to serenade her ever since. Let's hope he is. Like Al Jolson and Harvey used to sing, we would walk a million miles for uh, one more of your smiles. Harvey is survived by his two children, Andy and Kimmy, son-in-law Rob, granddaughters Lindsay, Casey, Megan, Amy, and Molly, honorary grandkids Jesse and Ryan, and nieces and nephews. That was Harvey Byron, September 5th, 1928 to January 23rd, 2023, author unknown from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, Sunday, July, January 29, 2023. And here is another one from the obituary notices of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 3rd, 2023, Rochelle Shelley Zitovsky Barron. October 27, 1937 to January 24th, 2023, author unknown. From Brooklyn to Fairfax to Beverlywood to Beverly Hills to Porter Ranch. Matriarch of the Barron family, beloved wife, mother, mother-in-law, grandmother, great-grandmother, sister, aunt, and great-aunt passed away at 85 years old. Survived by her four beloved children, Jeffrey Barron, Pamela, Michael Barron, Deanna, Terry uh, Barron, Gigi, and Rach Richard Barron, Glenna, uh, seven grandchildren, Robert, Ali, David, Marilyn, Samantha, Jack, Masha, Spencer, uh, Benjamin and Evan, and three great-grandchildren, Olivia, Emma, and Noah, sister Helene Harris, nieces Tammy Graves, Dan, and Janine Terraza's son Matthew, and nephew David Shaw, Beth. She was predeceased by her beloved husband, uh, Gary, married for 64 years, and parents Ra uh, Rose and Ben. She had a, a life well-lived. She and our father, Gary, traveled the world together and she owned her own travel agency. She also earned an, her AA in English with honors from SMC in her 40s, of which she was very proud. Family, holidays, and celebrations were, uh, were when she was the happiest, being surrounded by her beloved family and trying new things. We love you and will miss you, but your legacy of a close family will live on. In honor of our mom, please give your loved ones big hugs and kisses. Tell them you love them. Get together more often to celebrate everything and eat, sing and laugh, watch musicals, and travel together. Email memorial at gmail.com for funeral info and or to send condolences to the family. In lieu of flowers, if you would like to make a donation, please donate to the Jewish Healing Center, LAJHCLA.org. Rabbi Carla Howard provided unbelievable spiritual support during mom's hospice care at home, or please donate to the American Heart Association uh, dot, at um, the American Heart Association Heart dot org. Thank you.
That was Rochelle Shelley Zitovsky Barron. October 27, 1937 to January 24, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 3rd, 2023. All right, we have one we have one Israel story here. This is an opinion article, actually, from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. Palestinians in Israel have new cause for, to fear by David N. Myers and Daniel Sokach. In recent days, there has been an alarming escalation of violence in Israel and Palestine, adding victims to what has been what had been a deadly year in 2022. Last Thursday, the Israel Defense Force launched a raid against militants in the Janine refugee camp, killing nine Palestinians. The next day, a 21-year-old Palestinian from East Jerusalem fired on the Israeli Jews near a synagogue, murdering seven of them. Barely a month into 2023, these two episodes mark and have contributed to a new cycle of violence. They also add to a deepening political crisis in Israel. Every Saturday night, tens of thousands of Israelis of diverse political perspectives have been gathering in Tel Aviv and other cities to protest the new far-right Netanyahu government, including the proposal to make the judiciary entirely subservient to the ruling political class. Even more ominous is the threat that key members of the Netanyahu government are seeking a larger opportunity to create a state where Palestinians, who make up about 20% of the population of Israel, <clears throat> would no longer be welcome as its citizens. Sadly, the terror attack of the synagogue on Friday could further resolve uh, the, uh, those in power of this, those in positions of power today. Uh, we have heard from Palestinian and Israeli colleagues and friends about their their fears of a second Nakba, referring to the forced expulsion and dispossession of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from what is now Israel during the War of 1948. Many Palestinians speak of an ongoing Nakba since 1948, which they mean Israel's mix of discriminatory policies toward Palestinian citizens, restrictions on land possession and movement, and the 55-year-old occupation of the West Bank. But what we are hearing about now is something more dire, propelled by newly appointed government ministers such as Itamar Ben-Givur and Bezalil Smotrek, who have expressed a desire to see the land of Israel without Arabs. This may seem to some to be an exaggerated fear, but Smotrek, now the finance minister, told Arab-Israeli Knesset members in 2021 that they were here by mistake because Ben-Gurion didn't finish the job and throw you out in 1948. Ben-Givar, for his part, is a disciple of the racist Israeli-American rabbi Meir Kahane, who called for strict segregation between Jews and Arabs in Israel and depriving the latter of citizenship rights. Ben-Givar himself was convicted in 2007 of incitement against Arabs. More recently, he has spoken of the desire to encourage Arabs to leave the country and to expel undesirables such as stone throwers and Palestinian uh, Israeli members of the Knesset. It is particularly alarming that Ben Giver has assumed the position of Minister of National Security with control over the police and border patrol. Last week, he warned of the prospect of yet another Israeli military engagement in Gaza. In tandem, he's also revived the idea of creating a civilian guard to deal with social upheaval in Israel in its wake. 
for Palestinian Israelis, the call to arm civilians and the specter of vigilantism are haunting reminders of the brutal inter intercommunal violence that broke out in May 2021 at the time of another Israeli military conflict with Hamas in Gaza. The difference now is that an extremist like Ben Givor, with a track record of anti-Arab provo provocation, controls the levers of law enforcement. There should be no mistake, conditions of war such as in a future Gaza conflict, or for that matter, a wave of terror attacks, even if perpetrated by Palestinians from the West Bank rather than by citizens of Israel, provide cover and rationale for a population transfer. We have seen this most recently in the deportation of civilians from Ukraine and a migration from war-torn regions. In the Israeli context, political leaders such as David Ben-Gurion, Israel's founding prime minister, had long imagined the transfer of local Arab residents as a policy option. They also saw the 1948 war as an opportunity to create as large a territory as possible for Jews with as small an Arab population as possible. While they did not achieve their maximal territory, go territory goals in 1948, the overwhelming majority of the local Palestinian population was encouraged or compelled to leave their land. Palestinian Israelis live in fear of a repetition of this scenario today. What is perhaps most insidious is that this fear may already be doing the work of transfer. Palestinian Israelis have begun to seek foreign passports as well as business and educational opportunities abroad for themselves and their children. Families that have been on the soil for the Holy Land for centuries are considering leaving. Israel's Declaration of Independence calls for a complete equal equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. It is a moral and political imperative that all of us and especially Jews who know well the pain of disposition, insist that the current government adhere to this core democratic principle and prevent any attempt by extremists to force Palestinian citizens of Israel from their homes and country. That was Palestinians in Israel Have New Cause to Fear by David and Myers and Daniel Sokach from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. David N. Myers teaches Jewish history at UCLA and is the president of the New Israel Fund. Daniel Sokach is the CEO of the New Israel Fund. Okay, now these next few ones are uh, with regards to uh, our Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and his trip to the Middle East. This first one is from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, January 29, 2023. Attacks overshadow Blinken's Mideast trip. The violence will mean the planned focus on democracy will shift to security by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. America's top diplomat headed out on a trip to Egypt, Israel, and the West Bank on Saturday as a spiral of deadly violence gripped the Middle East with any plans to focus on democracy now overshadowed as the region races for the no-holds-barred retaliation to Palestinian attacks that the new extremist Israeli government has vowed. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken will become the highest level U.S. official to meet with Israel's new government, led by perennial Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and populated with far-right nationalists and Haredim. After a month in office, the Netanyahu administration has announced numerous policies that many Israelis say will erode Israel's democracy and civil rights and that have alarmed U.S. officials. 
the Blinken delegation had hoped to use two days of meetings in Jerusalem to press Netanyahu and other members of his cabinet on a variety of issues, including the normalization or recognition of Israel in the region, rights and freedoms for Palestinians, as well as Israelis, and the importance of creating a Palestinian state. Normalization, advancing it, and deepening it will be on the agenda, as will the Biden administration's unstinting uh, commitment for, to a two-state-negotiated uh, two solutions. U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs Barbara Leap said in a briefing ahead of the trip. But those issues now will take second chair to Blinken's more pressing mission to urge de-escalation after violence over the last few days in Jerusalem and the West Bank, some of the deadliest in years. Any serious criticism of the Israeli government's more drastic proposals will probably be shelved, several analysts predicted. The wave of violence began Thursday when a raid by Israeli troops on the Jenin refugee camp in the occupied West Bank killed nine, most of whom Israel identified as militants planning to ter a terrorist attack inside Israel. A woman in her 60s was, was among the dead, Palestinian authorities said. A day later, as Israeli Jews observed Shabbat on Friday night, a suspected Palestinian gunman opened fire in a, near a synagogue in East Jerusalem, killing seven and wounding several other people, before police fatally shot the assailant. Palestinian military groups praised the attack, and celebrations were reported in several Palestinian towns. In between those two deadly episodes, Palestinian militants fired rockets from the Gaza Strip into Israel, and Israel launched several airstrikes on Palestinian proposition, uh, positions. No casualties were reported. On Saturday, Israeli police said a 13-year-old Palestinian boy shot and wounded an Israeli father and son near Jerusalem's old city. Police wounded and captured the assailant. Given history and the explosive tensions of the moment, the cycle of killing could continue. U.S. officials said they have been on the phone consist constantly since the Janine operation with Israeli and Palestinian officials to urge calm. President Biden telephoned Netanyahu on Friday night to condemn the deadly shooting at the synagogue, which Biden called an attack against the civilized world. In response to the Jenin deaths, the Palestinian Authority, the, weakest, the weakened body that governs the West Bank, announced that it was suspending what has been a quietly successful security operation with Israel. Obviously, we don't think this is the right step to take at this moment, Leaf said of the move. Far from stepping back on security coordination, we believe it's quite important that the parties retain and, if, they, and if anything, deepen security coordination. But several members of Netanyahu's cabinet have threatened to take an increasingly hard line with Palestinians. Now the tough rhetoric will be tested as the government faces a genuine security crisis. Itamar ben Givur convicted in Israel years ago for inciting anti-Arab hate, but now a cabinet minister, has been put in charge of national security. Ben Givar once advocated deporting all Arabs, but softened his position more recently to say Palestinian terrorists should be expelled. He has also proposed changing rules of engagement to make it easier for soldiers and police to open fire on Palestinian demonstrators and more difficult to hold them accountable. Ben Givar's presence in the cabinet 
with such a powerful security role is especially unnerving for Palestinians. U.S. officials have also criticized some of his actions. He attended a recent memorial for his hero, Meir Kahane, the slain racist rabbi whose organization was branded a terrorist group by the U.S. Blinken refuses to meet with Ben Givor, aides say. Last Friday, late Friday, Netanyahu promised immediate actions in response to the synagogue shooting. We must act with determination and composure, he said, while urging citizens not to take the law into their own hands. At the site of the shooting, Ben Givar seemed to deliver the opposite message, promising to make it easier to arm civilians. Netanyahu had not wanted to confront the Palestinian issue this early in his tenure because of fierce retaliation risks angering Arab nations that only recently recognized Israel and who Netanyahu wants to keep on board in the quest for normalization, said Nimrod Gorim, a fellow at the Mideast Institute in Washington and head of a think tank in Jerusalem that studies regional politics. The region will react to whatever happens with the Palestinians, Gorin said, from his home in Israel. So far, they've been willing to play along, but if things go badly on the Palestinian track, they won't. The question is how quickly they would turn on Israel and its government, he added. Although the death toll in the region over the last couple of days is striking, the, uh, the pace of violence, particularly in the West Bank, has been steadily rising for nearly a year. Following a series of Palestinian attacks, Israel last spring launched a campaign raiding villages across the West Bank in what it said was an effort to eliminate militant cells. But 150 Palestinians were killed last year in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, along with about 30 Israelis, according to local human rights groups that keep track. That kept, that keep track. Before Thursday's Janine attack, an average of one Palestinian a day had been killed this year. Netanyahu's new government is advocating numerous policies that contravene uh, U.S. goals, including a plan to expand Jewish settlements in the West Bank, which is claimed by Palestinians for a future independent state. The settlements, which many countries consider illegal under international law, have been proforated exponentially to the point that a contiguous Palestinian state may now be impossible. Netanyahu and his partners are also trying to overhaul the Israeli judiciary so that courts would no longer be able to vet laws, taking away an important checks and balances mechanism. Netanyahu's critics say his aim is to have a criminal corruption case against him voided. Ultra-Orthodox members of the cabinet want to inject more religion into education, making make it harder for non-Orthodox foreign Jews to obtain Israeli citizenship and have condemned LGBTQ rights. Some cabinet members led by Ben Givar want to upset the traditional status quo of religious sites in the Holy City, which are delicately divided among the three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Days, taking office, days after taking office, Ben Givar made a provocative trip to the Temple Mount, known to Muslims as the Noble Sanctuary, where under rules in place for years, only Muslims may pray despite the site being sacred to both Muslims and Jews. We oppose any unilateral actions that undercut the historic status quo, State Department spokesman Ned Price said at the, la uh, at the, at the time. They are unacceptable. Blinken's trip to Israel, with a stop in Cairo, 
follows a visit earlier this in the in the month by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and reportedly by CIA Director William Burns at about the same time. The full court press reflects concern over the new Israeli government, which some fear could destabilize the region. That was a tax overshadowed Blinken's Mideast trip by Tracy Wilkinson from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 29, 2023. Right, this next one is called, it's from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 30, 2023. Blinken's visit comes amid test of Israel's democracy by Tracy Wilkinson. Cairo. As Israel, in recent weeks, put together its most right-wing religiously conservative government in history, senior U.S. officials insisted on waiting and seeing just how radical things would get. They emphasized policies, not personalities. Now nearly a month into a government led by returning Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and populated by an ultra-Orthodox politicians, it is already clear that a new bar is being set in controversial actions and extreme ideologies. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken arrives in Israel on Monday to take stock of the situation, but can he be effective given the Israeli government's momentum? Many in and outside Israel fear the democracy that the country long claimed to be, often billed the only democracy in the Middle East, is in danger of being badly eroded. The 75th anniversary of Israel's independence will be remembered as the year in which the country's democratic identity was dealt a fatal blow, the president of Israel's Supreme Court, Esther Hayat, said in an angst-ridden speech this month in the city, the Israeli city of Haifa. Tens of thousands of Israelis, old, young, and mostly secular, have poured into the streets every weekend this month to protest the changes Netanyahu and his coalition are planning that opponents believe will curtail civil liberties. Adding to the validity of the moment, there have been a spasm of the deadliest violence in Israel and the West Bank in years. On Thursday, Israel carried out a raid in the Palestinian city of Jenin, killing nine Palestinian militants and civilians. 24 hours later, a suspected Palestinian gunman shot and killed seven Israelis outside a synagogue in Jerusalem. With tensions escalating, Blinken traveled to Cairo on Sunday for what are, what are expected to be thorny talks Monday in Jerusalem and the West Bank city of Ramallah. The trip had been planned before the recent violence. Blinken is the most senior U.S. official to meet with the new Israeli government. He's one of several top officials who have attempted to sound out the incoming administration as the Biden White House seeks to de-escalate the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and minimize the potentially damaging fallout from Netanyahu's new policies. Uh, Blinken and other U.S. officials have been criticized in some quarters for being too circumspect in their approach to the new Israeli government. We will gouge the government by the policies it pursues rather than individual personalities, Blinken said last month. But, he added, we will also continue to unequivocally oppose any acts that undermine the prospects of a two-state solution, the vision of an independent Palestinian state existing alongside Israel. Those acts include moves the new Israeli government is already making, such as the expansion of Jewish settlements in the Palestinian-claimed West Bank and demolitions of evictions from Palestinian homes. Blinken also said he would emphasize the shared values of the United States and Israel, 
democracy, and representation. But so far, he has refrained from publicly criticizing the Netanyahu government. On Sunday, Netanyahu and his cabinet had already begun taking familiar punitive actions even as Jewish settlers across the West Bank attacked Palestinians and their property, according to human rights, and, human rights monitors and Palestinian media. In wake of the latest shootings, Netanyahu on Sunday announced plans to demolish the homes of two assailants, cancel their family's social security benefits, expand gun permits for Israeli Jews, and strengthen Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank, which could mean more military protection and other fortification. U.S. officials say there is an extra danger in the latest violence. Instead of being the work of the militant Gaza-based Hamas organization, it is more organic orchestrated by the homegrown groups in the West Bank whose belligerence is fed, up, fed, by, fed by frustration, years of occupation, and a belief that Palestinian leadership is ineffective. The dilemma for Blinken, who is meeting with Egyptian, Israeli, and Palestinian leaders during his trip to the, West, the Middle, Middle East this week, is that the violence that has victimized Israelis makes it more difficult to raise their, uh, with Netanyahu publicly, but even privately to an extent, issues such as the imperative, imperative uh, for a Palestinian state and the preserva preservation of democracy. Uh, business as usual is no longer sufficient said Nimrod Gorin, a fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington and president of MITVIM, a think tank in Israel, and that, Israel that studies regional politics. We want to see the values-based relationship in action, he said. We see our democracy being shattered very quickly and want to hear support from Western liberal politicians. Netanyahu and his coalition have launched their precedent-breaking campaign, starting with Israel's judiciary and legal system. They contend that much of the court system is overly politicized and are moving to reduce the Supreme Court's position as a balance to the uh, power of the Knesset or Parliament. Under the proposal, a Knesset majority would be able to override Supreme Court decisions. Politicians would also have a greater role in selecting judges. Many in Israel su suspect this so-called reform is a ploy by Netanyahu to make a criminal corruption case against him disappear. But its implications go much further, according to critics who say the court has often been the arbiter that pushed human rights legislation and held the government and military accountable for their actions. In addition, ultra-Orthodox members of the cabinet enjoying unprecedented power thanks to Netanyahu's deal-making coalition building want to inject more religion into education and make it harder for non-Orthodox foreign Jews to obtain Israeli citizenship. If also condemned to LGBTQ rights. What Netanyahu is doing is nothing short of waging war on Israeli democracy, and if he succeeds, Israel may change forever, retired veteran Israeli diplomat Alan Pincus wrote in the Haaretz newspaper. Rest assured, this is, a patent, this is patently an effort to bring about regime change. Preferring to focus on security, Blinken is reluctant to attack domestic Israeli policies such as the judicial overhaul, HC, and is more likely to stick to more generic advocacy for democracy and civil rights. Netanyahu and conservative supporters of his government dismiss most of the complaints as hyperbolic spin. The majority in Israel today is right-wing and religious, and the minority is worried about their future, said David Elizri, an, author, an, Orange County, uh, an Orange County rabbi who is director of the North County Chabad Center and is active in Israeli affairs.
Israel's Supreme Court, for example, has long favored the left, and the changes will, will impose balance, he said. At a demonstration in Tel Aviv on Saturday night, protesters held a minute of silence for those killed in Friday's synagogue shooting before speaking out on the dangerous trajectory they believe the government is following. The atmosphere was one of anger and resignation and a sense of impotence. I feel that my country is coming apart, said Yonatan Hazu, 29, a tech worker who lives in Tel Aviv. Big demonstrations may not make a difference for politicians, but they would for investors and businessmen. Though Saturday's protest was more subdued than the previous ones because of the synagogue attack, it was emphatic nevertheless. I have voted for Bibi Netanyahu all my life, said Neta Naur, 65, referring to the prime minister by his nickname. I don't want a religious state here. It is very difficult for me to hear that many young people want to leave the country, that they feel they have no future. That was Blinken's visit comes amid the test of Israel's democracy by Tracy Wilkinson on the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 30th, 2023. Special correspondent Tamar Zir in Tel Aviv contributed to this report. All right, here's another one from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. U.S. seeks de-escalation of Mideast unrest. Official decries Israeli-Palestinian violence and expresses support for a two-state solution for peace by Tracy Wilkinson. Jerusalem. Arriving in Israel at what he called a pivotal moment, Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken on Monday called on Israelis and Palestinians alike to step back from the brink of all-out conflict, condemning terrorism and vengeance killings that target innocent civilians. Blinken flew into Ben-Gurion International Airport near Tel Aviv after a day in Cairo, and on Tuesday he will head to the West Bank city of Ramallah to meet with Palestinian officials. At each stop, security has taken on an urgency after a spate of some of the deadliest violence in Israel and the West Bank in recent memory. Blinken also held several hours of consultations in one-on-one meetings with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and President Isaac Herzog and Foreign Minister Eli Cohen, who has been on the job just under a month as part of Netanyahu's new far-right government. At the airport, Blinken took the unusual step of reading a formal statement on the tarmac to the assembled media in which he fiercely criticized the killing Friday during Shabbat of seven Jewish Israelis by a Palestinian gunman. He called it a heinous crime and made all the, made all the more shocking because, because it killed worshippers. And Blinken also chastised those who would celebrate such violence, as some Palestinians were reported to have done. But, he added, calls for vengeance against more innocent victims are not the answer, and acts of retaliate, retaliatory violence against civilians are never justified. It's the responsibility of everyone to take steps to calm tensions rather than inflame them, Blinken said. Though couched in diplomatic parlance, Blinken uh, touched on tough topics in Jerusalem during his earlier stops in Cairo. He publicly repeated to his Israeli host the need for our shared values to preserve and strengthen democracy at a time when many Israelis believe democracy is being threatened by the new government's policies to weaken courts and inject ultra-conservative religion into education and public life. At a joint reading of statements to the media with Netanyahu, Blinken suggested that their discussion of protecting democracy was frank but respectful. 
he reminded Netanyahu that a democracy must allow people's voices to be heard and build consensus for new proposals. He was alluding to waves of demonstrations against the Netanyahu government's most controversial plans and widespread fear of the erosion of Israel's democracy. That conversation will continue, including with other members of Israel's government and civil society, as part of a perpetual process to defend and bolster the pillars of our democracy which we are both committed to, Blinken said. He also repeated the Biden administration's position that a permanent and enduring peace must include establishment of an independent Palestinian state, which many in Netanyahu's cabinet oppose. In Cairo, Blinken stood beside Egyptian Foreign Minister Sameh Sukri at a news conference and spoke about human rights in the country, a highly sensitive topic, and revealed that he had met with Egyptian human rights defenders. Egypt has an abysmal human rights record. Under President Abel Fattah Sisi, thousands of people have been arrested and often held without charges, including dissidents, activists, journalists, and critics of the government. Human rights groups have uh, documented cases of torture and death in custody. Blinken, who also met with Sisi behind closed doors for a little over an hour, said that while Egypt had made strides in religious freedom and other areas, the concerns that we have remain. He urged Egypt to release prisoners, reform pretrial detention, protect members of civil society, and allow freedom of expression. Making tangible and lasting improvements on human rights is essential to strengthening, strengthening even more our bilateral relationship, Blinken said. In Jerusalem, Blinken praised the normalization agreements between Israel and a handful of Arab countries led by the Gulf states, which recognized Israel for the first time. Both Blinken and Netanyahu said they want, wanted to expand the process to bring in more countries. But Blinken cautioned that normalization cannot be a substitute for resolving the fundamental conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. As we advance Israel's integration, we can do so in ways that improve the daily lives of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, he said. That was U.S. seeks to de-escalation of Mideast unrest by Tracy Wilkinson from the World section of the Los Angeles Times Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. All right, and we have this final one here. From the World section of the Los Angeles Times Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, Blinken visits a disillusioned West Bank. Secretary of State reiterates U.S. support for a two-state solution with Israel by Tracy Wilkinson. Dear Dibwan West Bank, Maison Ali, a Palestinian banker, has a message for visiting U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken. She wants him to understand and acknowledge that the vision of an independent Palestinian state nation existing alongside Israel, the two-state solution favored by, for years by most U.S. administrations, is dead and buried. It has been killed, said Ali, 56. I can't even dream it. I don't see it. This is what I want the secretary to hear. Blinken, wrapping up a three-way visit to the Middle East on Tuesday, met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas and other officials in the West Bank city of Ramallah, a day after extended consultations with Israel's Prime Minister, President, and Foreign Minister. Abbas, 87, had tough words for Israel, its continued occupation of Palestinian territories, and the failure of the international community to stop its actions to seize Palestinian claimed land and thwart efforts by the Palestinian Authority to find justice in international forums. 
efforts that Washington firmly opposes. At every turn in this visit, Blinken has reiterated his government's long-standing support for the two-state solution, even as its prospects seem more distant than ever to both Israelis and Palestinians. The far right that now governs Israel has long opposed independence for the approximately 4.5 million Palestinians who live in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. For the Palestinians themselves, rejection of the two-state solution has been a slower evolution. In an independent Palestine, in an independent Palestine next to Israel, which has insisted on keeping control of some of the prospective state's borders and airspace, we would just have the same Israel. Uh, we would just have we just have the name Israel the Power," said 80-year-old Mohammed Mustafa, another resident of Deir Dibwan, who lived in the U.S. for many years, and said he fought for the U.S. military in Vietnam. Years of failed, occasionally bad faith negotiations interspersed with periods of violence from both sides have achieved only a modicum of sovereignty for Palestinians, and Israel has continued to permit tens of thousands of Jewish settlers to move into the West Bank, the West Bank lands. The heavily guarded Israeli settlements have effectively made the creation of con a contiguous state impossible. The two-state solution was killed by the Israelis, Ali said. I know Blinken knows it's not working. I look for the American government to take a stand and say it has been killed by Israel. Ali was born in this affluent village near Ramallah, heavily populated with Palestinian Americans, and lived in the United States more than half his life, her life. She holds a U.S. passport, but because of her Palestinian birth, is barred from using Israel's airport and suffers other indignities, she said. Opinion polls have showed support for the two-state vision declining steadily among Palestinians, reflecting frustration and a sense that a viable state will never happen. Instead, many Palestinians now support the so-called one-state solution, a single country with both Israelis and Palestinians, but importantly, with equal rights for both communities. At the same time, a majority doubts Israel would ever grant such liberties to Palestinians. One set of calculations behind that scenario suggests that Palestinians with a higher birth rate would eventually outnumber Israeli Jews. Failure to give the majority full rights would, in theory, be unattainable, but, would, but so would the ability to maintain Israel's identity as a Jewish and democratic state. The latest poll by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research conducted in December and released last week showed that support for a two-state solution which in 2020 was at roughly 43% for both Palestinians and Israelis, has fallen to 33% among Palestinians and 34% among Israelis. It was the lowest level of support for the concept among both groups since the poll was con first conducted in June 2016, the center's director Khalil Shakaki said in a statement. The hardening of attitudes is driven by deep concerns about the ultimate goals of the other side, he said. Indeed, perceptions of the other have worsened significantly since mid-2017 and are currently at a low point, with the two sides a mirror image of one another. After his meeting with Blinken, Abbas also blamed Israel for destroying the two-state solution and for stoking violence in the West Bank. But he said he was willing to work with the U.S. to open dialogue and end the occupation. Standing with Abbas at the presidential headquarters in Ramallah to read statements before the press, Blinken said 
improvements in living conditions and prosperity and peace for Palestinians would be best realized by a two-state solution, but acknowledged the deteriorating possibility. What we are seeing is a shrinking horizon for hope, not an expanding one, he said, and that has to change. The Secretary of State said he was assigning two senior staff members, Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs Barbara Lee and Special Representative for Palestinian Affairs Hami Amir to stay behind and continue to work on diffusing tensions. Though Blinken said the effort would build on ideas he and officials had come up with uh, on, the, on the trip, the move might also reflect a lack of progress. Blinken traveled into the West Bank in a convoy of armored vans and SUVs, driving on a well-maintained highway with walls on either side that tracks north from Jerusalem. Palestinians are not allowed to use the highway without special permission, even though it cuts through their land. Some exits are marked with red signs from the Israeli government, they say, in three languages. The entrance of Israeli citizens is forbidden. Earlier Tuesday, Blinken met with the new Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant in Jerusalem. Before Blinken arrived, a journalist asked Gallant how the security situation was going on in the West Bank. He said Israeli forces were doing what is necessary against terror. After a Palestinian government shot and killed seven Jews on Friday at a synagogue near Jerusalem, the Israeli minister has continued a campaign of raids and arrests in parts of the West Bank and Jerusalem. The synagogue shooting came 24 hours after a deadly attack by Israeli forces on the Jenin refugee camp in the West Bank. Ten people were killed, and most of whom Israel identified as Palestinian militants, but at least one civilian woman in her 60s. Blinken has not condemned that the Jenin raid, but on Tuesday lamented the, uh, the deaths of innocent civilians and said both sides should refrain from unilateral actions. It is unclear, however, what control the aging Abbas and the fractious Palestinian uh, Authority have over events in the West Bank. Abbas is regarded by many Palestinians as an unpopular leader who has overstayed his time in office and become ineffective. He has held on to office more than a decade past his term and refused to hold elections. Meanwhile, he has clamped down on critical media, dissidents, and opponents. Other militant groups not loyal to the Palestinian Authority have sprung up in the West Bank and are willing to use force to press their cause. Asked if uh, he had confidence in a boss to fight terrorism and effectively promote Palestinian statehood, Blinken said in a news conference at the end of his trip that he would focus on what the Palestinian Authority does rather than the actions of individual leaders. We're focused on what the Palestinian Authority is doing both to work to improve the lives of the Palestinian people as well as to engage responsibility with Israel on, first and foremost, diffusing the current situation, the current cycle of violence, reducing tensions, not escalating them, calming things down, not ramping things up, Blinken said. During his appearance with Abbas, Blinken urged the Palestinian Authority to strengthen its institutions and governance practices. Rahman Barakat a Palestinian resident of East Jerusalem does not have to deal directly with the Palestinian Authority, but she knows how dispirited its citizens have been, have been left by officials' repression and incompetence. But Barakat, who runs the Palestinian program at a multi-ethnic cultural center on the line that divides Israel and the West Bank in Jerusalem, puts more blame on the Biden administration's nearby unconditional support for Israel.
A lot of people have lost hope from different officials coming and going, she said. With every new president, uh, new administration, the president has to come here. Nothing ever comes of it. There are no results, and we will believe it when we see it. Barakat said President Trump's decision to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and close the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem that catered to Palestinians was an enormous blow because it ignored Palestinian claims to parts of Jerusalem. It was very violating, she said. But worse, she said, is the Biden administration's unfulfilled promise to reopen the consulate. The bar for hope is now is very low, she said. There was Blinken visits a disillusioned West Bank by Tracy Wilkinson from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. All right, and now back home, here's something from the Perspectives section. Actually, this is uh, considered another Israel story. Uh, This is from the Los Angeles Times Perspective section, Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. Jewish Holocaust rescuers tell their story. Remaining members of a youth network in Hungary that saved tens of thousands fear it will be forgotten by Alan Bernstein. Kibbutz Hazoria, Israel. Just before Nazi Germany invaded Hungary in March 1944, Jewish youth leaders in Eastern Europe, European countries jumped into action. They formed an underground network that in the coming months would save tens of thousands of fellow Jews from the gas chambers. This chapter of the Holocaust, Holocaust terrorism is scarcely remembered in Israel, nor is it part of the official curriculum in schools. But the few remaining members of Hungary's Jewish underground want their story told. Dismayed at the prospect of being forgotten, they are determined to keep their memories of their mission alive. The story of the struggle to save tens of thousands needs to be a part of the chronicles of the people of Israel, said David Glur, 97, one of a handful of members still alive. It is a lighthouse during a period of the Holocaust, a lesson and exemplar for the generations. The world marked International Holocaust Remembrance Day on Friday, and historians, activists, survivors, and their families are preparing for the time when they will be there will no longer be living witnesses to share first-person uh, person accounts of the horrors of the Nazi genocide during World War II. In the Holocaust, six million Jews were wiped out by the Nazis and their allies. Israel, which was established as a refuge for Jews in the wake of the Holocaust, has gone to great lengths over the years to recognize over the th- over the years uh, to uh, to recognize thousands of righteous among the nations, non-Jews who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. Accounts of Jewish resistance to the Nazis, such as the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, are mainstays of the national narrative, but rescue missions by fellow Jews such as the Hungarians, the Hungarian resistance, are less known. Hungary was home to approximately 900,000 Jews before the Nazi invasion. Its government was allied with Nazi Germany, but as the Soviet Red Army advanced toward Hungary, the Nazis invaded in March 1944 to prevent its Axis ally from making a separate peace deal with the Allies. Over the 10 months that followed, as many as 568,000 Jews were killed by the Nazis and their allies in Hungary, according to the figures from Yad Vashem, Israel's official Holocaust memorial. Gers said he and his colleagues knew that disaster was looming when three Jewish women arrived at Budapest's main synagogue in the fall of 1943. 
They had fled Nazi-occupied Poland and bore disturbing news about people being shipped to concentration camps. They had fairly clear information about what was happening and saw the and saw the main train many trains and it was obvious to them what was happening, Gur said. Gur oversaw a massive forgery operation that provided false documents for Jews and non-Jewish members of the Hungarian resistance. I was an 18-year-old adolescent when the heavy responsibility fell upon me, he said. There was great personal risk. In December 1944, he was arrested at the forgery workshop and brutally interrogated and imprisoned, according to his memoir, Brothers for Resistance and Rescue. The Jewish underground broke him out of the central military prison that month. They forged papers. The forged papers were used by Jewish youth movements to operate a smuggling network and run Red Cross houses that saved thousands from the Nazis and their allies. According to Gur's book, at least 7,000 Jews were smuggled out of Hungary through Romania to ships on the Black Sea that would take them to British-controlled uh, Palestine. At least 10,000 forged passes offering protection, known, uh, known as Schutz passes, were distributed to Budapest Jews and about 6,000 Jewish children and, uh, and accompanying adults were saved in houses ostensibly under the protection of the International Red Cross. Robert Rosette, a senior historian at Yad Vashem, said that although it was the largest rescue operation of European Jews during the Holocaust, this episode remains off the main route of the narrative. It's very significant because these activities helped tens of thousands of Jews stay alive in Budapest, he said. In 1984, Gur founded the Society for Research of the History of the Zionist Youth Movements in Hungary, which has promoted awareness of, uh, about this effort. Last month, at a kibbutz in northern Israel, Sarah Epstein, 97, Desi Hefner Reiner, 95, and Betzalel Gross, 98, three of the remaining survivors who helped save Jews in Nazi-occupied Hungary, received the Jewish rescue recitation for their role in the Holocaust. The word is given by two Jewish groups, B'nai B'rith World Center Jerusalem and the Committee to Recognize the Heroism of Jewish Rescuers During the Holocaust. There aren't many of us left, but this is important, Hefner Reiner said. Uh, more than 200 other members of the underground were given the uh, award posthumously. Gur received the award in 2011, the year it was created. Yuval Alpen, son of one of the rescuers and an activist with, with the society, said the citations were meant to recognize those who saved lives during the Holocaust. This resistance underground youth movement saved tens of thousands of, Jew of Jews during 1944, and their story is not known, he said. It's the biggest rescue operation in the Holocaust, and nobody knows about it. That was Jewish Holocaust rescuer tell, rescuers tell their story by Alan Bernstein from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. Bernstein writes for the Associated Press. AP writers Eleanor Reich and Elon Ben-Zion in Jerusalem contributed to this report. And now for real back home. This is from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, February 3rd, 2023. Shift Press's effort to honor P-22 on stamp. Burbank Lawmaker pushes Postal Service for lasting recognition for Celebrity Cougar by Laura J. Nelson. 
Since P-22's death in December, the most famous mountain lion in Los Angeles has been honored with roadside tributes, half a dozen murals, murals, and an upcoming celebration of life in Griffith Park expected to draw thousands. Now Representative Adam B. Schiff, Democrat of Burbank, is pushing for a more permanent honor, a P-22 postage stamp. In a letter sent Friday to the federal government that recommends new U.S. stamps, Schiff wrote that P-22 was a magnificent and wild creature who reminded us uh, us all that we are a part of a natural world so much greater than ourselves. When I think about what I would like to see on a postage stamp to represent the wild and beautiful aspect of Los Angeles, I think of P-22, Schiff said in the interview. Representing Hollywood, I have a lot of very famous constituents, but none more famous than P-22. Schiff recommended that the stamp riff on the image that made P-22 famous, an item shot of the tawny cat prowling past the Hollywood sign, which was published in National Geographic. The Hollywood sign turns 100 this year, so the stamp would honor two symbols of L.A., Schiff said. If selected, P-22 would join the ranks of dozens of other California icons honored with stamps, including actors, authors, artists such as wildlife photographer Ansel Adams and sculptor Ruth Asawa and flora and fauna, including the Sierra Nevada's giant sequoias and the California sea lion. The Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee, an 11-member group that reviews thousands of submissions each year, will consider the P-22 proposal. The committee meets quarterly and recommends about two dozen designs per year. In 2023, the Postal Service would unveil designs honoring pop artist Roy Lichtenstein, the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, and the iconic Yellow American School Bus. The committee's meetings are closed to the public, and in-person appeals are not permitted. The committee decides with all postal customers in mind, including stamp collectors, and favors stamps that honor extraordinary and enduring contributions to American society, history, culture, or environment, the Postal Service said. The committee's stamp recommendations are sent to the Postmaster General for final approval. Subjects that aren't selected can be resubmitted in three years. Members of the public can write in and support the nomination or nominate P-22 themselves, Schiff said. All communications to the stamp committee must be mailed, yes, with a stamp, to Washington, D.C. He's earned a stamp, said Beth Pratt, a regional executive director in California for the National Wildlife Federation, who often called herself P-22's agent. This can't globally influence wildlife conservation. That is not an overstatement. Pratt said a P-22 stamp could show the kind of support the mountain lion enjoyed in California. The memorial planned for P-22 on Saturday at the 5,900-seat Greek Theater in Griffith Park has been sold out for weeks. They're going to get 4 million letters, Pratt said. If the P-22 proposal doesn't make the cut, Schiff says, we will continue to submit this request until we succeed. The letter to the Stamp Advisory Committee was also signed by Southern California Representatives Julia Brownlee, Democrat of West Village, Westlake Village, and Ted Liu, Democrat of Torrance. As an adolescent cat, P-22 made an improbable trek to Griffith Park from his birthplace in the Santa Monica Mountains, journeying through the Hollywood Hills and across the 405 and 101 freeways. Scientists had considered the park 
too small for an apex predator. But P-22 stayed in Griffith Park for 11 years, occasionally venturing out into nearby neighborhoods including Los Feliz and Silver Lake. Cut from the rest of his species by freeways and urban development, P-22 never found a mate. His isolation and his closeness to the city lights helped to make, the make him the face of an international conservation campaign to save Southern California's threatened pumas. For all we make of him, this cat didn't know any of this. He didn't know he was famous, said National Geographic photographer Steve Winter, who took the iconic Hollywood sign photo of P-22 in a recent interview. We have to carry his story forward and hope the rest of California's endangered cougars will be able to, be, to bounce back and thrive. Donors around the world contributed tens of millions of dollars to build a wildlife bridge across a 10-lane stretch of the 101 in Agoura Hills. The bridge slated to open in 2025 should create a connection between two cougar populations living on either side of the freeway. P-22 was euthanized in December after exams revealed serious health problems, including a skull fracture, a torn diaphragm, and heart, kidney, and liver disease. The big cat was struck by a driver in Los Feliz about a week before his death. That was Shift Press's effort to honor P-22 on stamp by Laura J. Nelson from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, uh, February 3rd, 2023. Alright, and now here is something from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 30th, 2023. At 88, this slugger is still swinging for the fences. Neither cancer nor age keeps Benny Wasserman out of batter's box. By Steve Lopez. It was a Friday morning and the sun was shining. To 88-year-old Benny Wasserman, that meant only one thing. Time to grab his baseball bat, button up his Detroit Tigers uniform, and head to the Home Run Park batting cages in Anaheim. There, Wasserman could give himself a break and step into the cage with the 40 mile per hour pitches or maybe the one with 60 miles per hour heat. Now, this is no rookie we're talking about. Benny Baseball always goes up against the Top Gun, which launches 90-mile-per-hour missiles. It's like facing Clayton Kershaw in the playoffs. When I hit a home run, Wasserman said, it makes my day. This has been going on for 10 years, every Friday unless it rains. Prostate cancer has not stopped Wasserman. Pulmonary fibrosis has not stopped him. Nothing, it seems, can take the bat out of his hands. He loves it, said Fern, Wasserman's fight of 65 years. Many years ago, as a lad in Michigan, Wasserman dreamed of becoming a major leaguer. Now he chases a different call. I'm calling it 90 at 90, Wasserman said. When he hits the big 9-0 in April of next year, he wants to prove that he can still crush a screaming 90-mile-per-hour pitch. There's only one thing worth noting about Wasserman. He worked in aerospace as a technician and engineer, but a merger put him out of work at 58. That's when a business associate of his middle son asked him a question that led to an unexpected second career. Did you ever tell and did, you, did anyone ever tell you that you look like Einstein? Weinstein, uh, Wasserman said no, but his curiosity was piqued. Sure enough, with glasses, a mustache, and his hair tossed as if he plugged his finger into a socket. Wasserman was a dead ringer for Albert Einstein. Two weeks later, he got a job as an impersonator 
and he got a booking manager named Brian Mulligan who lives in Pennsylvania and resembles another famous American. Brian is a Benjamin Franklin look-alike, Fern said. Wiseman traveled the country and the world for more than two decades getting paid for resembling genius. He did commercials, movies, and television. I was in Leave it to Beaver, the 1997 movie, Wasserman told me. But the theory of relativity never interested him as much as the game of inches. When he greeted me at his home in Cerritos, Wasserman, who still could pass for Einstein, was wearing a Hank Greenberg jersey. The Hall of, Fame, the Hall of Famer, who played both infield and outfield, is one of his all-time favorite Tigers. A man of many interests, Wasserman took me into his den and music studio where he played the opening notes of Malaguena on his guitar. I asked to play the electric keyboard, but I should have known the answer. Wasserman stepped up to the keys and played, of course, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Speaking of, Wasserman takes an, takes an interest and oca takes an occasional Angels game, but the nearest ballpark is much closer than that. It's in his backyard. Wasserman has created a mini-stadium with a white picket fence as the left-field wall. The infield lawn is manicured, the baselines are chalk, and the bases are the color of vanilla ice cream. The backyard slugger fired up a wiffle ball pitching machine and chopped away at one, of, at one pitch after another in his field of dreams, a white-haired optimist perfecting the art of eternal childhood. This wore him out a bit. Sir Wasserman slumped into a lounge chair to catch his to catch his breath. He told me that prostate cancer has been he's been fighting for four years has spread, but he isn't sweating it. When they say it's metastasized to the bones, it's just a matter of time, he said. But life is a matter of time. Benny and Fern have three sons. Two are lawyers, and one is a retired geriatric doctor. Prostate cancer is really complex in older men and not necessarily fatal, said Michael Wasserman, the MD. He believes in the mind-body theory that healthy living and a sense of purpose, his father's 90 at 90 plan, for instance, can stretch longevity. We still don't understand it, Dr. Wasserman said, but there are so many ways a positive attitude affects our whole body and our immune system. That makes sense, but there was one unanswered question. Could Benny Wasserman really hit... His youngest son, Mark, drove him to Home Run Park, which is roughly midway between Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm. The middle son, Craig, was waiting in the parking lot. The brothers often watch and record their father's baseball exploits. The batting cage staff told me no customer is anywhere near Wasserman's age, and he goes there so often they've stopped charging him. Wasserman confessed he was a bit nervous about stepping up to the plate, he talked a good game about his hitting prowess, but would, but would he wither under the pressure of high expectations and dishonor the memory of Hank Greenberg? Not a chance. Wasserman entered the cage and crouched in a comfortable right-handed stance. He, wa he wagged his aluminum bat. He wagged his aluminum bat and peered through the, his glasses, eyeing the arm of the pitching machine like a man gunning for a call-up to the majors. Baseballs began whistling at him like meteors, but Wasserman never flinched. The machines don't throw curveballs, but they're erratic. One pitch up, another down, the next outside. Wasserman tracked the offerings and grooved his swing, a compact flick of the wrist whiffling only rarely. 
The real Einstein might have known something about the speed of light, gravity, and the passage of time, but could he handle high heat and drive a baseball into the gap? Wasserman began with a dribbler here and there until the timing clicked, and then he found solid contact. Thwack, thwack, thwack. A line drive, a double into right center, a rope up the middle, and then a shot. Oh! Wasserman shouted, thinking he belted a triple a round tripper, but the ball didn't clear the beam that represents the top of the home run wall. Oh, yes! Wasserman declared on another shot, but this one as well came up just short of glory. And then, behold. Wasserman got a pitch in his zone and muscled a bomb to right. Go, go, go! Wasserman shouted as the ball soared on wings and a prayer. Home run! It was the first of three. The second one riffled through, uh, over the center field wall. The third, a rocket to left center, would have landed in Downey if not for the net. We all love him, said Chris Wysong, the batting cage manager, who told me that quite a few younger prospects could learn a thing or two from Benny Baseball. He hits better than most of the customers do. Wasserman is right. Life is a matter of time. How you spend it, that's the thing. And that was, at 88, This Slugger is Still Swinging for the Fences, by Steve Lopez, from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 30th, 2022. 23, that is. And now, let's start going into some entertainment news, starting with this one from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, January 29th, 2023. Swerves Across Feminist History. The kaleidoscopic after Sappho turns stayed narratives on their heads, but something's missing, by Hillary Kelly. Selby Wynch Schwartz's After Sappho has it out for linear narrative in a big way. Maybe narrative has never really served women anyway, has never properly told her, told their stories or helped them write their own. Maybe you think while reading this debut novel, it's payback time. After Sappho, which was long listed from, from the 2022 Booker Prize, feels like a Greek chorus's group chat with voices that slide out of their identities and into new ones and stories that sputter out for chapters only to come roaring back. If I had to write its publicity copy, I'd call it a fictional collective biography of a real-life group of sapphists. Lesbians, yes, but more particularly spiritualists devoted to the famous but elusive ancient Greek poet whose work survives only in fragments, coupled with the political history of the women's movement in Italy. But that description has way too much solidity. The novel is diaphanous, celestial, disembodied, sometimes to its benefit, sometimes not. A thousand milk toast histories might have been written for, uh, from Schwartz's material, largely taken from the 1880s to the 1920s. Her loose group of characters includes writer and Salone hostess Natalie Barney, painter Romaine Brooks, novelist and provocateur Radcliffe Hall, modern dance pioneer Isadora Duncan, famed actor Sarah Bernhardt, avant-garde architect Eileen Gray, anarcha-feminist Anna Kulsyov, and prima ballerina Ida Rubinstein. The first thing we did, the novel begins, was change our names. We were going to be Sappho. Who's we? The nameless women who want to uh, shed their structures like snakeskins. The secretly educated women driven to needlework 
when what they want is to plunge a sharp point into a man's chest. The lesbians run underground by politicos bloviating about indecency. Anyone, really, who in the, in the collective narrative's opinion wanted what half the population had got just by being born. And what does it mean to be Sappho? For these women, so create fearlessly, uh, to create fearlessly, live unencumbered, and screw whomever they please. If women's lib is commonly thought to have progressed in successive wavelets over the better part of a century, after Sappho wants to rewrite that linear story into a swirl, not waves, but eddies. In the early 1880s, Leslie Stephen conceived two legacies. He began working on the Dictionary of National Biography, a definitive timeline of nearly 30,000 eminent dead Brits, and he fathered Virginia Woolf, who would go on to unshackle the written word from the constraints of time. Schwartz's pseudo-history is an endorsement and emulation of the Woolfian experiment. We believe Virginia Woolf was right about everything, and an arrow aimed at Stevens' Victor Victorian brain. Wolf eventually makes her way into after Sappho, and livens it up a good deal, but only after the women gather and disperse, flee forced marriages, and find heterosexual relationships of convenience ad nauseum. In their youth, they recoil at the stories they've been told. When we were children, we learned what happened to girls in fables, eaten, married, lost. Then came our bouts of classical education, imparting to us the fates of women in ancient literature, betrayed, raped, out, cast out, driven mad in tongueless grief. In adulthood, they gathered to recite poetry in ivy-covered gardens, organized congresses for women's rights, retreat to Greek islands, begin and abandon manifestos and manuscripts, and push themselves into, a, into the arenas of life, especially art and sex, that men have doggedly guarded. One of the primary things they want is a century less muffled in fabric. It's hard to write succinctly about work that, uh, that staggers in so many directions. Midway through the novel, I was reaching into a grab bag of vibes uh, Schwartz, uh, Schwartz adorns, adores cerulean and azure swaths of open sea, the adjective sibylline fabrics like almond-colored velvet and rough linen, sunlight dabbled by leaves. Sometimes her language is so overtly lofty that I expected feathers to flutter out from between the pages. The text swerves from breathy and adulterary to cunning and punky. Marriage was a fundamentally uh, was fundamentally a humiliation of women, and will not the adequate critic of women be a woman? We also longed for writing tables that were not in the kitchen. Schwartz's snappiest lines would fit on coffee mugs prized by middle-aged moms as tokens of unexplored rebellion. Nevertheless, I nodded along. The middle of Sappho goes soggy. The charm of its, of its eddies wears thin. Please hit me with a big wave. That is, until World War I comes along. By the narrator's telling, lesbians entered a miniature golden age, a sleek, exuberant step forward in the early 1910s. And then the men began their great war. What a preposterous masculine fiction, further proof that the world they run keeps women at their bloody mercy. Yet the killing fields of the Somme give the women something to define themselves against. Should the men of Europe be discontinued, they wondered. They 
they hustled art away from the men and began and began to make it all about themselves. Sharp pieces taken from life, enough lyric poetry. Not another still life with flowers, more portraits of us. Is this the key to artistic equality, self-portraiture? Towards the novel's last pages, a sketch of an unexpected but historically accurate character appears. Berthe Clarigway cooked and cleaned for Barney and Brooks in Via Trade de Union, the house they shared in France. She observed their habits and neuroses. She not only had all of their own lives uh, to herself, uh, she also saw straight through a dozen others. Clarigway, the narrators exclaimed, has taught us that we had been wrong about housekeepers. In 1980, Clarigoy published a self-portrait of her own, documenting the exploits and personalities of the sapphists she'd waited on and bonded with. When I can nab a copy in English, I'd be curious to find out whether Clarigoy ever bore any resentment towards her employers, who needed her to pour their glasses of cur, dust the Parisian townhouse, and pass around their sandwiches. The housekeepers and maids, cooks and kitchen girls, made the artistic pursuits of other women possible. Women replaced other women in the kitchen. Now they replaced them in daycare centers. There is always an underclass of women, and I wonder about the Berthas who didn't really co who didn't read Colette and couldn't leave behind written documentation of their lives. There may they may be fragments miss, uh, mis missing from Schwartz's homage to Sappho. This elusive, at times joyful, and enveloping not-quite novel. As Colette remarked about La Nassance de Jour, a book she designed by no other descriptor than feminine, you may have sensed that this novel, that in this novel, that the novel does not exist. Is a novel what Schwartz wanted at all? Only one, a one-time only performance piece in a groove of trees of lesbos, followed by an orgy, might have suited her purposes better. Fleeting, immersive, surrounded by that dappled sunlight, I'd watch it. That was Swerves Across Feminist History by Hilary Kelly. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 29, 2023. Kelly's work has been published in New York Magazine, Vogue, The New York Times, and elsewhere. Okay, here is another book review from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 29, uh, 2023. A Buried Pirate Treasure, Democracy, by Sam Dean. In a pirate stronghold on the lush eastern shore of Madagascar, the child of a native-born sorceress and a roving buccaneer unites warring kingdoms, fends off a tyrant from the mountains, and secures a long-lasting peace. In the hands of most historians and storytellers, this would be a straightforward tale of adventure and heroism in an exotic locale. Not for David Graeber. In his book, Pirate Enlightenment, or The Real Libertalia, the point isn't the swashbuckling, though some swashes do indeed buckle, but the real story of anti-authoritarianism, gendered economics, and direct democracy behind a legendary 18th century pirate province. The bleeding edge of the Enlightenment's democratic revolution in this telling wasn't to be found in a Parisian guillotine, but rather in the fragile consensus forged over long meetings on a distant island. This is the second posthumous book by the anthropologist and anarchist social critic who died suddenly at age 59 in 2020. 
In many ways, it can be read as an addendum to 2021's The Dawn of Everything, which Graeber co-wrote with archaeologist David Wengro as a doorstopper argument against the pat story of civilization inexorably progressing from hunter-gatherer uh, gatherer bands to hierarchical complex city-states without any room for human ingenuity or experimentation. The point of Dom was not to argue for a new teleology or advance a single idea in the story of Jared Diamond or Yuval Noah Harari of how humans can live because of what came before. Rather, the book was a compendium of destabilizing alternatives a dissertation on the fundamental constructedness of things, leading to the conclusion that what makes us human is the ability to imagine, talk, and decide what we want to do together. Graeber wielded history, anthropology, and archaeology like an axe, hacking holes in the walls built up around us to show the reader, uh, the reader vistas or other possible worlds. His earlier book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, which launched him from academia and left his organizing to popular nonfiction shelves, synthesized millennia of economic history with a similar aim, to undermine the, the standard account of money, homo economicus, in Bull Jobs, his 2018 book based on a viral essay. He probed the question of why so many of us seem to go to work only to do meaningless texts that we find detestable. Graeber painly described his goal in that book's introduction. I would like this book to be an arrow aimed at the heart of our very civilization. Pirate Enlightenment began its life as part of On Kings, an academic anthropology book Graeber published in 2017 based on his dissertation research in Madagascar conducted in the early 90s. When he looked at his fieldwork again, uh, he found the subject of the Zana Malata, a distant ethnic group descended from the pirates, and the Betsimazaraka, the larger group whose name translates to the many unsundered, too interesting to limit to a chapter. After the breakout success of Dawn, readers will likely come to this book as a kind of expansion pack to the earlier work, and in some ways it fits the mold. The pith of the argument is that the Zana, Zana Malata, son of a pirate, Tom Ratsimilaho, has been incorrectly portrayed as a European civilizer of the Madagascar coast. Instead, Graeber writes, this historical figure mixed pirate and Malagasy forms of democracy to create a period of peace without slavery, coercion, or much hierarchy. It's hard to avoid the sense that Graeber might have produced a different book had he been alive to see it published. In his most popular works, Graeber developed a freewheeling conversational style. He zeroed in on individual stories and specific personalities at length, but took care for the most part to ensure the reader knew why we were delving into grain distribution rituals of Samaritan city-states or the contrasting work cultures of neighboring indigenous Northern California tribes. No matter how closely he invited us to peer at the trees, we still have a sense of Graeber's forecast. Critics of Dead and Dawn found fault with that chatty style, which sometimes elided factual errors or made rhetorical leaps that wouldn't pass muster in academic peer review. 
Graeber occasionally pointed out a blank space in the historical record, which the prevailing wisdom had filled with ideology and myth only to fill in that space with his own tenuous counter-story. But boy, was that story compelling. Graeber had mastered the art of pulling out research, pulling, pulling new research out of his home field and contextualizing it for the lay reader. If it took a hundred pages to summarize decades of intellectual debate and discovery about hunter-gatherer societies to make a point, then that's how long it was going to take. And the conclusion was all the more satisfying for the legwork it took to get there. Pirate Enlightenment could have used more of that expansive style and list minute details arguing against the established scholarship. It is interesting, for example, that the descendants of pirates came to replace an earlier, possibly Jewish, caste of ritual cattle slaughterers, but it's difficult to connect that with the thesis of tracing the early Enlightenment to the Western Indian Ocean. You could see the forest through the trees if you squint. But the book hews much closer to the, its origins as an academic text. In the spirit of Graeber's utopian thinking, it's easy to imagine a slightly different book as a fun stinger to Graeber's popular career, one that fits the Madagascar material into the tales of pirates as proletarian rebels against imperial capital, building outlaw republics on Caribbean isles. Those are stories that other scholars and popular writers have told, but I would have loved to have read Graeber's kaleidoscopic, ornery, optimistic take on the full span of skull and crossbone history. Flashes of that larger story do shine through, and the book advances Graeber's mission to destabilize our idea of what's possible and show that humans can and often do create egalitarian worlds built on points of consensus instead of the sharp end of a cutlass. That was a buried pirate treasure, Democracy, by Sam Dean, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 29th, 2023. All right, there's this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 30th, 2023. A warning on streaming deals. UTA's Jeremy Zimmer says compensation of talent falls short and a reckoning looms, by Wendy Lee. Jeremy Zimmer is on a mission. The chief executive of Hollywood's third largest talent agency, UTA, wants to see a new deal with streaming services. Studios are in crisis mode, slashing costs, yanking shows, and laying off hundreds of workers in a desperate effort to boost profits and justify massive investments in streaming. Meanwhile, writers, directors, and actors are increasingly agitated about dramatic changes in how they are being compensated and the lack of transparency from streaming platforms. Zimmer believes the time is now to re-examine how talent is compensated, whether that means sharing in ad revenue or getting a share of back-end profits when shows become hits and make uh, money in secondary markets. For the last year, there's been a lot of people across the industry understandably really concerned, Zimmerman said. Now we're at a place where we can start having conversations around what are the solutions to get this to get out of this. Cost cutting is rarely a solution that leads to growth. In a wide-ranging interview, Zimmerman discussed the challenges facing the streaming industry, the strong likelihood of a writer strike, and how a head-on collision might be avoided through better structured deals. He also addressed the changing uh, environment for talent agencies 
and how UTA is expanding its reach in literary representation, digital media, and other areas outside the core film and TV business. Below are excerpts from conversations with Zimmer and UTA President David Kramer, which have been edited for brevity and clarity. Question. We've seen a wave of shows, show cancellations at Netflix, HBO Max, and other streamers. How has this affected you and your clients? Zimmer. Any time that an artist has a show can canceled, particularly in an abruptly or pre preemptory manner, manner, it's really distressing. They're hurt. They're insulted. They feel like they were get weren't given a chance. But it also shows the tremendous economic strain that these companies are under. They had so much growth for so long, and everything was going great, and then suddenly, the environment changed. And it's like, whoa. So instead of, how are we more thoughtful? How do we rearrange the economic relationships with artists? It's, oh my god, we've got to throw, show, we've got to throw shows away and fire people, and so on. I'm hoping that, that constituents in our business wake up and go, wait a minute, are there more thoughtful, intelligent ways for us to pursue our business? Question. Jeremy, you've written an op-ed and spoken out about exploring changing the structure of deals between talent and streaming services. What do you think needs to change? Zimmer. There's a lot of conversation going on now about how to deal with the structures involved. How, about how do the deal structures evolve? How do we create more risk sharing among talent, producers, and streamers? How do we create additional revenue streams for the financiers of the content so they're not a one-source economy, where the only way that you make money is to sell subscriptions. Now Netflix will start to sell ads, and beyond that, we'll start to see the streamers selling their content to other broadcasters. It'll allow artists to share in the success, because the most successful shows will sell for the most money in a secondary market. And suddenly, we'll all be talking about a business that makes sense. Kramer, my hope is that we get to a place where it's more of a partisanship with some of our buyers in terms of transparency around who's watching what and how the clients participate in that versus the system that was set up not too long ago with a lot of these companies buying out the backer buying out the back end profits. When we started with Netflix, they were only the they were the only game in town that did this. Now most of the big companies do this. They said, we're not going to do ads, now, we're going, now we are doing ads. We're, we're going to see companies like Warner Brothers Discovery announcing their deal with Amazon and have a bunch of their product in France on the Amazon platform. So how do the artists participate in that? I think it's really important to figure that out. Question. How receptive have the streamers been to changing how deals are structured? Kramer. There's more and more of these conversations today than before, probably, uh, probably because of what we saw happen during the pandemic, when things were getting flipped from theatrical to streaming, and all of a sudden you saw streamers changing their approach. So I feel like they're getting more receptive to it. We're not done. There, question. There's a rising frustration among talent that they aren't fairly sharing in streaming profits, which is fueling labor tensions. What's the likelihood of a writer strike this year? Zimmer. I think there's a very good chance of a strike, and really what the complaint comes down to is if you're a writer, use it to be it used to be that television a television show would have eight, nine, or ten people on a staff. They'd be paid on an episodic basis for twenty four episodes over a four week schedule. 
and now they're working on eight episodes being paid on an episodic basis, and there's only three or so writers on the staff. It's really impacted their ability to make a living while the cost of living has gone up tremendously. As much as streaming was great because there was so many more shows and you could make a lot of bigger variety shows, there was more creative freedom and there was less scrutiny in terms of ratings. For the day-to-day -day writer, it's not nearly as good as uh, living as it used to be. I think, th I think that is a legitimate concern. Question. So is a strike inevitable? Zimmer. I'm not a believer in, oh, you have to have a strike. The way that this has been set up and the way collective bargaining seems to work is it becomes this sort of very acrimonious battle and there's good guys and bad guys. It seems like we all have the same interests at heart. If we can pierce through to address the, uh, the adjustments we all need to make this work for everyone, things tend to get solved that way. Question. Where will writers get the potential additional revenue at, from advertising? Zimmer. There could be the ad revenue or there could be just a different kind of allocation in terms of how much the overall budget of the show is and where does that money go. The money ultimately usually comes from the revenue or the budget. It's not that hard to figure out and we've got to create a fair living wage for our writers. Question. What is your agency doing to prepare for a potential strike? Zimmer. We're working on as aggressively as we can with our clients to find our clients opportunities to help get things done, get things written, and get deals closed so writers can start writing and get work in. Right now there's not much we can do other than really try to be of service to our writers, directors, actors who really want to work before the strike. Question: Are studios making preparations for a walkout? Kramer, I am starting to hear that some of the companies are trying to look at the calendar for when they'd be in production and when they can't be in production, given they don't want to be in the middle of production when a strike hits. Question. It's been a challenging period for agencies with shutdowns caused by the pandemic, the fight with the Writers Guild of America over packaging fees and changes brought by, main, by streaming. What do you see as major challenges ahead and where in the industry and where the industry is headed. Zimmer. The outcome of the potential writer strike I think is a challenge. Inflation is a major challenge to the agencies because even though our revenues have grown and continue to be strong, the cost of running a business, any business, has gone up significantly. The cost of making a television show has gone up dramatically. But there will only be more ways and more avenues of opportunity for us to pursue. We would have never thought of being in the at eSports business a few years ago. That's a very fast-growing area for us. None of us could have foreseen the power of digital talent five or ten years ago. The growth of the streaming business is a giant thing and that has endured beneficially to our clients in a tremendous way. Question. UTA is the third, is the third largest agency behind Creative Artists Agency and WME. As your rivals grow bigger, how do you compete? Zimmer. We're not like waking up every day going, we've got to get bigger. We're waking up every day saying, we've got to be better. We've got to consistently evolve and pay attention to what's changing in the market marketplace and how those changes are going to affect our clients. And I think that's really what makes us as successful as we are and why we have the place we have in the marketplace. Question. What are the biggest growths, uh, growth areas for UTA? Zimmer. Our sports business 
and our music business are going to continue to grow significantly in 2023. We've had an amazing partnership and growth with Clutch Sports, and we've had an incredible growth in our music business. A lot of our digitally native businesses, whether it's digital talent or esports or DBA, digital brand architects, our beauty and lifestyle management company is are going are also going to grow dramatically. Question. Like other agencies, you've been expanding, acquiring five companies since 2021, including UK-based literary and talent agency Curtis Brown Group, and most recently, literary management firm Fletcher and Company. What was the rationale for that acquisition, and what else are you looking to buy? Zimmer. Fletcher and Company is a great business. Christy Fletcher is an incredible agent. She's got an amazing roster of authors and at the heart of everything has great ideas and IP intellectual property. Popular IP is frequently the source of great projects, great movies, great television series. More central to that, people still love to read books. Our platforms are changing, so it requires more imagination. We have to figure out where is the world going and what potential acquisitions are out there that could really be of value to us as the world continues to change. We're certainly looking to grow our sports business and for smart opportunities in music. Question. Following the murder of George Floyd in 2020, several studios and agencies vowed to push for greater diversity. Still, only one of the top firms, WME owner Endeavor, has released company-wide diversity figures. Why hasn't UTA done that? Zimmer. I don't feel that it's my job or responsibility or obligation to release figures to people. My business is to run my business in a way that I think is right and fair and the best thing for my people. I think we're doing that and I feel very comfortable with where we are. Diversity is really a really important initiative at United Talent Agency. I'm really proud of the work we're doing here and we're going to continue to do that work. Question: Can you give me any example can you give any examples of the steps you've taken? Zimmer DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, is an area of long-term investment for us that includes focusing on the success and advancement of our people. We have ongoing programs around onboarding, men- mentorship, and education. That was a warning on streaming deals by Wendy Lee from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 30th, 2023. All right. And this one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. Leonardo is like an unfinished portrait. Mary Zimmerman's play has plenty of acrobatics, but not much excitement. By Charles McNulty, theater critic. San Diego. If the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, the performance collage written and directed by Mary Zimmerman, no longer seems as revelatory as it did when it burst into existence at Chicago's Goodman Theaters in the mid-90s, it's partly because Zimmerman's trailblazing work has steadily raised theatrical expectations over the ensuing decades. Her 2002 Broadway production of Metamorphosis, a reimagining of Ovid's classic that earned Zimmerman a Tony Award for her direction, had a marvelous simplicity that found uh, transformative magic in an on-stage pool of water. More recently, her 2015 production of The White Snake at San Diego's Old Globe Theater turned an ancient Chinese fable into entrancing, if evanescent, theatrical entertainment. At her best, Zimmerman sets in motion the spectacle that dazzles the eye and tickles the mind. 
her return to the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, an Old Globe presentation of last year's Goodman Theatre revival, unfortunately has the muffled vitality of a respective exercise, a retrospective exercise. Try as I might to recapture the excitement of the first seeing the work in New York in 2003, I was unseduced visually and dramatically. Inspired by Leonardo's voluminous record of his insatiable curiosity, the play dips in and out of the roughly 5,000 pages of surviving material the Italian polymath left behind from his excursions into anatomy, astronomy, architecture, botany, physics, and, of course, painting. His masterpieces include Mona Lisa and The Last Supper, but his notebooks reveal the full panorama of his genius. Zimmerman pays homage to an artist who exemplifies the high Renaissance uh, ideal of the universal man. Leonardo's mind, obsessed with the engineering of flying, was always in flight, alighting on higher and higher branches of knowledge and forever challenging the limits of how far he could soar. The play is composed in subject matter fragments. Instead of following a clear narrative plan, Zimmerman attempts to create the workshop of Leonardo's mind. The words spoken by the eight-person ensemble are taken from his writings. The topics covered include the eight positions of men, exhibited as a kind of circus valet, and the four powers of nature, all of which are uh, also demonstrated by strong, limber bodies. The feats of strength and flexibility are impressively acrobatic, but Zimmerman doesn't aim for spectacular effects. A modest human scale is maintained. Awe is reserved for the way careful scrutiny combined the way careful scrutiny combined with imagination can shine a light into the unknown the study of anatomy alternates with observations on the solar system and the less distant natural world there are sides on psychology and some discussion of the geometry of bodily forms the effects of shadow and light in perceptions and the superiority of painting over sculpture Leonardo's rivalry with Michelangelo gives rise to th- this latter subject. Scott Bradley's scenic design features a kind of giant apotheca- apothecary desk with large drawers that seem to be spilling over with new discoveries and hypotheses. The text, however, evokes a stack of index cards with joustings from an undefatigable undefat- researcher unbound by, his historical, by historical limits. The lack of dramatic organization creates challenges. Interest flags as it might at a as it might at a lecture by a professor shuffling a stack of notes more or less at random. But there's an underlying theme. For Leonardo, to appreciate the world, one must first examine it ardently, like a devoted lover. Great love springs from great knowledge of the beloved object, and if you little and if you little know it, you will be able to love it only little, or not at all. These words of his, per- these words of his pertain not just to our intimate human relationships, but to our connection to the earth that created us. The tableau that Zimmerman arranges to accompany Leonardo's wide-ranging wisdom have a handcrafted quality. A skein of ropes is systematically assembled by the ensemble as scrolls are unrolled to illustrate the science of perspective. Birds, Leonardo's lifelong obsession, figure prominently in the theatrical tapestry. The integrated staging, which includes Renaissance costumes by Mara Blumenfeld, Dusky Lightning by T.J. 
Gherkins, and original music by Miriam Sturm and Michael Bodine has subdued charm. But superficial enticements are kept at bay. Committed to abstraction, the notebooks on Leonardo da Vinci deconstructs its own stage magic. The production, a key work in the development of Zimmerman's aesthetic, proceeds according to its own high-minded rhythm, like a steadfast traveler ambling along an endless horizon line. That was Leonardo is Like an Unfinished Portrait by Charles McNulty, theater critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. It's called The Notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci at the Old Globe Theater, 1363 Old Globe Way in Balboa Park in San Diego. 7 p.m. Tuesdays and Wednesdays, 8 p.m. Thursdays and Fridays, 2 and 8 p.m. Saturdays, 2 and 7 p.m. Sundays, check for exceptions, ends February 26th. Tickets start at $33. Info is theoldglobe.org or calling 619-234-5623. Running time, 1 hour, 30 minutes. All right, and here's one final one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 3rd, 2023. Disney disputed overboard, heat, overboard seat heats up. The company has asked shareholders not to vote for the activist Nelson Peltz by Meg James. Walt Disney Company has rushed to the defense of a board member who is now a target of activist shareholder Nelson Peltz amid his high-profile campaign for the influence at the Burbank Entertainment Behemoth. On Thursday, Peltz's hedge fund, Tryon Fund Management, asked Disney shareholders to boot board member Michael B.G. Froman to make room for Peltz on the board. In a letter to Disney investors, Tryon said it was essential that shareholders vote for Peltz and reject Froman by voting to withhold support for Froman's re-election. If you do not withhold on Michael B.J. B.G. Froman, this could jeopardize the goal of elected, electing Nelson Peltz to the board, said the Tryon letter to Disney shareholders. But in its own letter, Disney encouraged shareholders to reject Tryon's request. Your board does not endorse Mr. Peltz or his son as a nominee and believes that his election would threaten our efforts to manage Disney for all shareholders, the company said. Over more than six months of engagement with Mr. Peltz, he has demonstrated that he does not understand Disney's businesses and he lacks the perspective and experience to contribute to the objective of delivering shareholder value in a rapidly shifting media ecosystem. Peltz's aggressive campaign to shake up the Disney board comes less than three months after CEO Bob Iger returned to the legendary company to restore stability and its creative footing. Iger must now contend with numerous brush fires that broke out during the last three years, including re, uh, refining Disney's streaming strategy by focusing on profits rather than just subscriber growth. Iger also has dismantled the organizational structure imposed by Disney's former chief, Bob Chappick, who less than three years, his less than three years run was seen as a disappointment. Iger, before he left the company at the end of 2021, shaped the board. Froman, a Harvard Law School classmate of former President Barack Obama, has served on Disney's board since 2018. He worked as U.S. Trade Representative in Obama's second term. He was previously Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economic Affairs for, uh, during Obama's first term. Froman has been Vice Chairman and President for Strategic Growth at MasterCard Incorporated since 2018. Before joining the Obama administration, Froman worked at banking giant Citigroup. Early in his career,
Froman worked at the Clinton White House. Disney described Froman as a highly valued member of the board with deep background in global trade and international business, who the board believes is far better qualified than either Mr. Peltz or his son to help drive value for shareholders. Froman's decades of experience in business and international affairs are critical to helping business assess the risks and opportunities in an increasingly complex global marketplace, given its strategic focus on global growth of its customer base and innovation to, in changing markets, Disney said in a statement. The company noted his experience in issues affecting the digital economy, the usage and protection of data and intellectual property rights, all of which are critical to Disney's business. Peltz 80 has been meeting with Disney executives and board members for months in hopes of gaining a seat on the Burbank Entertainment Giants Board of Directors, but his overtures were rebuffed. His next move is to try to get himself elected by Disney shareholders who will vote at the company's annual meeting. A date has not been announced. Peltz, known for his proxy fights with companies including Procter & Gamble, recently disclosed his effort to gain a board seat and pressure Disney to correct what he calls self-inflicted problems at the company and amid its poor stock performance. He listed his grievances on a website called RestoreTheMagic.com. Disney chairwoman Susan Arnold recently announced that she will step down after the company's board elections this spring. Mark Parker, a former CEO of Nike, who currently serves on the board, will replace her. When Arnold departs, Disney will have 11 board members. Since Iger returned, Disney shares have gained 20%. Disney shares closed Thursday up nearly 3.5% to $113.21. That was Disney dispute over board seat heats up by Meg James from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 3rd, 2023. All right, let's turn to something from the Jewish Journal for January 27th to February 2nd, 2023 with Rebbe's teachings, Bo Confronting Evil The third section of the book of Exodus opens as God tells Moses to come, Bo in Hebrew, to Pharaoh in order to announce the eighth plague. Two more plagues follow, after which the Jews are finally released from slavery and sent forth from Egypt. In Parshat Bo, we witness the mighty Egyptian empire brought to its knees, its idols crushed, and its arrogant Pharaoh reduced to begging for his life. It also includes the origin and details of the observances meant to commemorate the Exodus, the Passover sacrifice and the holiday and the consecration of the firstborn. As such, Parashat Bo is the Parashah of the Exodus, not just the background, build-up, or aftermath of the Exodus, but the Exodus itself. Even before the actual signal to leave is given, we feel the, the eminence of redemption. Pharaoh's courtiers are urging him to stop his senseless refusal to let the people go and the people are collecting their long overdue payment for their work from the Egyptian populace and preparing to leave. It seems strange then that the Pharaoh is named Bo, come, after God's instructions to Moses come to Pharaoh. The fact that Moses must come to Pharaoh indicates that Pharaoh has the upper hand, that he is the dominant authority. Furthermore, why are the ten plagues spread over two parashiot? It would seem more logical than the preceding parasha to be devoted entirely to the theme of crushing the power of Egypt through the plagues, while this parasha with the preparations and details of the exodus per se.
the Zohar notes that God did not tell Moses to go, go to Pharaoh, but to come to Pharaoh, meaning come with me to Pharaoh. This was because beginning with the eighth plague, God sent out to break Pharaoh himself to destroy his power from its core. In order to do so, it was necessary to confront Pharaoh in his power seat, the setting from which he drew and commanded his ominous influence. This meant not only going to Pharaoh's throne room, where Moses had, had been before, but also meeting him spiritually in the depth of his evil. When God showed Moses the, the noxious spiritual uh, fount of Pharaoh's evil power, Moses was afraid to approach it. God therefore reassured him that he would accompany him and help him overcome Pharaoh. Then the underlying thought behind the words come to Pharaoh, thus the underlying uh, thought behind the words come to Pharaoh is the confrontation with Pharaoh's essence. It is here that he and all the evil he represents can be decisively broken. Breaking Pharaoh's powers was the essential prerequisite for the exodus. Indeed, it was the essence of the exodus. Egypt, with all its opulent wealth and imposing awesome edifices, was the very embodiment of materialism. Even its religion, its gods, and its distorted vision of the afterlife were materialistic. The exodus was the release from this oppressive and constricting philosophy and lifestyle in order to live a life dedicated to God's transcendent reality. In order to be free, the chain had to be broken, Pharaoh had to be crushed, in the very height of his seat of power. But in this light, far from contradicting the tone of the rest of the parashat, the term Bo actually reveals its true message. Uh, in our own personal lives, as we undergo our own individual redemptions, which will collectively lead us to the ultimate general redemption, we must take our cue from how God told Moses to crush Pharaoh, to aim for the jugular vein, and attack evil at its root. Everyone has his or her personal Pharaoh, the aspect of life where opposition to holiness is most acute. This is where a primary assault should be directed, and when this Pharaoh was vanquished, the other obstacles in life will follow suit. Furthermore, we need not be afraid of this inner Pharaoh. Just as God accompanied Moses into Pharaoh's chamber, did the battle with him himself, we can call upon God to accompany our inner Moses as it confronts our inner Pharaoh and help us destroy it. That was Rebbe's teachings, Bo Confronting Evil, from the teachings of Libo Victor Rabbi, Rabbi Menachem M. Schneerzon. The Rebbe's inspira inspirational teachings on the Torah portion can be found in the Kihot Humash product produced by the Chabad House Publications, sponsored by Chabad of California and loving memory of Rabbi Semak Yeshua Kunin, emissary of the, of the Rabbi of the Rebbe and director of Chabad at Century City. Okay, let us conclude with reading some ads from the Jewish Journal, starting with this one. Los Angeles Jewish Health is energizing senior life. The evolution of our name from the Los Angeles Jewish Home to Los Angeles Jewish Health reflects the full spectrum of our comprehensive award-winning programs and services. Los Angeles Jewish Health has grown from a group of caring neighbors providing shelter to a leading nonprofit senior care organization. Our mission remains the same, to deliver excellence in senior care for all rooted in Jewish values. With more than 100 years of trusted care, we meet you where you are in life to provide a customized experience that's right for you. Independent living, assisted living, senior behavioral health, 
short-term rehabilitation, skilled nursing, PACE, hospice and palliative care, nursing school, geriatric health, memory care. LAJ Health, Los Angeles Jewish Health. One call does it all. 855-227-3745. Website is www.lajhealth.org. All right, here's one. Only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. Warren Buffett. <laughs> How has your portfolio performed over the past year? RVW's evidence-based investment approach is backed by decades of empirical research. Portfolios are designed to seek higher expected returns and are managed by an efficient and repeatable process. Low-cost, tax-smart transparency is at the heart of what we do with simplified, clear reporting. We are fiduciaries. Our interests are fully aligned with yours as trusted advisors and we receive no incentives or rewards from third parties. We provide the highest level of professionalism and integrity. Almost none of the major brokerage firms are true fiduciaries. Our advisors include CPAs and chartered financial analysts. We are ruthlessly bottom line focused and eschew trends or fads, resulting in an investing experience that is very different from what is typically provided. Your financial goals are unique, and we have the strategies and investment solutions that help you achieve them. RVW portfolios reflect each client's need for income, growth, and safety respectively. Your custom financial plan directs the wealth optimization process we employ. It provides peace of mind knowing that a roadmap has been designed to enable you to live the life and leave the legacy you envisioned. RVW Wealth, Resilient Portfolios for Turbulent Times, 1880 Century Park East Suite 200 in LA 90067. Phone is 310-945-4000. Website, visit uh, rvwwealth.com. The Wealth Blueprint, authored by Selwyn Gerber and Jonathan Gerber, call for your complimentary copy. Always read and, re and rely exclusively on offering uh, documents before investing. Past performances may not, uh, may not rear. All investing, investing involves risk. All right, here's this one. Remembering journalist Daniel Pearl. 21 years ago this week, on February 1st, 2002, American journalist Daniel Pearl was kidnapped from his home in Pakistan and murdered by terrorists. His last words were, my father is Jewish, my mother is Jewish, I am Jewish. This issue of the Jewish Journal is dedicated to his memory and the principles of journalism he stood for. Here's this one. The premier address for retirement living. Where you live says a lot about how you live. The village at Sherman Oaks' premier address in the heart of the valley is not only a choice location, it's one with lots of choices. Here you'll find an engaging blend of comfort, style, fine dining, and social opportunities. And with full-service maintenance, free living, safeguards, and supportive care options, you'll discover the retirement lifestyle that's just right for you. Please call 818-245-5832 to schedule your personalized tour. The Village at Sherman Arks, CARF Accredited Independent Assisted Living and Memory Care Residences, 5450 Vesper Avenue in Sherman Oaks. Uh, website is shermanoaksseniorliving.com. Phone is 818-245-5832. On-site rehabilitative services available. Equal housing opportunity. RCFE number 19760-8694.
Okay, and let us go with this one right here. Amy Swars, Realtor, 310-748-2990. Website is www.amyameeswars.com. I know the West Side extensively. I grew up here. I was born and raised in Beverly Hills. I went to Hawthorne Elementary and Beverly Hills High School. I had my bar mitzvah in Israel, worked for a major company in interior design for 10 years. I went to Camp S. Kramer and Brandy Summer Camp. I am passionate about real estate and interior design. Amy Swartz, KW Keller Williams, Beverly Hills, 439 North Canyon Drive, Beverly Hills, California, 90210. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Shalom and peace.